Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 150 being recorded on Monday, November 5th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back. Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, you just recently got back from sunny and blazing hot Las Vegas, Nevada uh, for the first annual grocery shop. And that's what really the theme of today's show is going to be, is a grocery shop recap. But before we jump into that, we did want to cover some breaking. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. All right. Well, we've been talking about this on the show for about a year. A year ago, Amazon announced that they were going to look for a second headquarters that would house 50,000 employees. Uh, and it it was kind of this uh, huge process and we're coming down to the end of it. And there's two unconfirmed reports out today, one from um, the Washington Post and one from New York Times. Uh, and it looks like Amazon is, first of all, going to split. This is also not confirmed. Uh, so the Wall Street Journal says Amazon's actually going to do two cities instead of one. So it's kind of like HQ one and a half and HQ two. Um, and they're splitting the jobs pretty evenly. So 25,000 jobs into each city. And the two cities that seem to be most rumored are Crystal City, which is a suburb of the D.C. area in northern Virginia. And then the other one is a suburb of New York City called Long Island City. Jason, what do you think about uh, this result, if it's true? And how true do you think it is? Yeah, well, uh, so it does sound pretty true. Uh, there were a lot of rumors earlier in the week, and it seemed like Amazon was actively... Uh, in some cases, refuting them and or scolding the leakers. And they they seem completely silent about this, which makes me uh, feel like um, it, it's on the mark and it's pretty credible news organizations that are citing multiple sources. So seems pretty credible. And if it's true, um, it, a, it reaffirms a lot of uh, people's hypothesis that this was... Uh, sort of largely a marketing stunt. And it, it makes me feel like Seattle is actually the big winner because um, like these, these would definitely would not be co-equal headquarters now that they're dividing up the jobs. And I'm, I'm going to assume that, that uh, the, the center of gravity and most of the senior leadership are going to continue to predominantly live in the, in the Seattle area in this scenario. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, my logic on this was it, it never made sense to me that they could hire 50,000 people because so my logic is the retail part of Amazon is pretty staffed up. In fact, you know, robots are replacing humans a lot of times in the in the, the commerce part of Amazon. Um, so this feels like largely AWS engineers. Uh, and, you know, it's very hard to go find 5,000, much less 10,000 or 50,000 folks that could work on AWS. So so I, I think they started to kind of come to that same conclusion and thus splitting them up. And I imagine those 25,000 numbers are going to be over 10 years or something as well. They're, you just couldn't possibly hire that many 
AWS qualified people, even in those dense tech cities to, to work on stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how this lands. Um, so we just wanted to cover that really quickly because it's been the source of so much speculation, but we want to spend the bulk of our time tonight on grocery shop. So, so Jason, uh, I was not able to go, but uh, you went. Um, first of all, how was, how was Las Vegas? Did you end up uh, making money, losing money? Yeah, I uh, go to Las Vegas too often, so I am no longer much of a wagerer. So I I did lose some money, but I lost it uh, spending a week in Las Vegas, not at the tables. Yeah, did you get to uh, visit your favorite Starbucks? Uh, I did not. So uh, dedicated listeners will remember I spent like 18 days in a row in Las Vegas at the Venetian earlier this year, which I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Um, this show was at the Aria, so um, I did not make it to the Venetian Starbucks, but I, I did get to reacquaint myself with uh, several Starbucks in the vicinity of the Aria. Awesome. So so for the, the grocery shop show, maybe orient for listeners, um, you know, how this show came to be, who puts it on, and how did this compare to kind of shop talk and money 2020? Yeah. So the the show, this is the first year of the show. It's put on by the same folks uh, that started Shop Talk and Money 2020, as you mentioned. Um, Money 2020 was their first show, uh, and it started at the Aria as well. Um, And then it eventually, it it felt like the show doubled in size every year, and it eventually outgrew the Aria Convention Center and then had to move to the Venetian. Um, And after three years of growth, uh, they actually sold the show to another event company, and they started simultaneously. They started the second show, Shop Talk, and Shop Talk also started at the Aria, and it also doubled every year. Uh, last year, it outgrew the Aria and moved to the Venetian. Um, and they this year they started two new shows. A show I don't know a lot about that's in the health category, and they started this uh, show, Grocery Shop, which is all about digital grocery. Um, and, uh, this show started at the Aria. It, it felt very similar to the first year of money 2020 or shop talk. And I mean that in a good way. I feel like these guys have, have, uh, built a pretty good template for an event. So they, they do a really good job of recruiting, uh, interesting speakers that people want to hear from and they're great digital marketers and they market the heck out of those speakers, which causes other people to want to go and network with those folks, um, and you know, at this point, kind of three or four shows into their, their progression, uh, I feel like they have a, a, a really solid templatized execution, um, that they run and, you know, they invite me to speak at all of them because they use caricatures of you. And I feel like I'm just cost effective because they already paid to have my caricature drawn. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it is. Yeah. I think that's my main value add. Um, a fun fact for uh, speakers is that they send you um, coffee mugs with your caricature on it. So I have a complete collection of Shop Talk, Money 2020, and now Grocery Shop mugs uh, that my mother-in-law has claimed. So if you ever get coffee at my mother-in-law's house, be prepared for the jarring image of my face. Um, and this year, they up the ante. They sent us a cookie with uh, my my caricature on the front of the cookie um, in frosting. Very cool. And, and so, I remember I uh, jokingly asked one of the folks uh, at Shop Talk, "Who does the caricature?" And they're like, "Oh, that's our that's our most closely held secret." And I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. So you know what's funny about that? I I believe they did say that to you. 
if you went to an early Money 2020, that guy was working in a, a shop, a, a Money 2020 booth, and you could stand in line to get your own caricature drawn. Ah. Uh, and eventually, apparently, he became so so popular and beneficial to them that they they hid him behind the scenes. But like, there were attendees from those first Money 2020s that actually got their their caricatures drawn while they were attending the show. But the big controversy amongst the speakers on Twitter earlier this year when the cookies went out was, can you, in fact, eat your own face? Like, is that is that weird? And, you know, there was a lot of talk about that. And I definitively solved the the dilemma when I tweeted out a picture of my three-year-old gleefully diving into my face to eat it. Nice. Yeah. Eating, chewing on dad's face. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so more than listeners wanted to know about the logistics from the show. Um, but I feel like uh, at a high level, they picked a really good topic for a show. Um, I think they were hoping like a thousand people would attend the show and they sold out the show uh, at 2,200 people, which was the capacity for the the convention center they had. So already uh, don't be surprised if you see the show move from the Aria to the Venetian next year, or I guess there is a rumor that the Aria is expanding their their um, facility, so maybe maybe they'll stay in the expanded facility. Um, but it definitely felt like there there was a unmet demand for folks in this industry to be able to get together and share some ideas and best practices, and I, I feel like. A lot of people were were uh, excited to come. People were super engaged, and all the feedback I got from people on their way out of town or from from my own team after we got back was was super favorable. That it was a good event, and everyone wants to have a a bigger participation next year. So, congratulations to the the folks at Grocery Shop on on uh, doing a great job for the first year. Awesome. Let's dig into some content first of all. Um... As mentioned, you were quite busy, so I kind of thought they should have called it Jason Talk. Um, so you gave a keynote and you led two panels. Let, let's kind of go through those in sequence and, and kind of go through some of the highlights of what you learned there. Uh, starting with the keynote, I saw on Twitter there a lot of people uh, took this one picture where it looked like you were putting some lipstick on. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, uh, I'm a very metropolitan dude. What can I say? Uh, so I feel like you're being slightly generous in calling it a keynote. So it was uh, it, it it was a keynote, but I'm not sure I gave it. So what uh, this was a fireside chat format. So I was interviewing a gentleman named Sanjeev Mera, um, who's one of the founders of this cool company that that listeners are probably familiar with but may not know um, called EOS Products, um, and it's E O S. Uh, it actually is a, a acronym for the evolution of smooth. Um, and a, a, a little over 10 years ago, they invented a new lip balm for women that was in this sort of round egg shaped format. And you, you know, they're now ubiquitous and super popular. Um, but in many ways, EOS sort of invented or was an early pioneer in influencer marketing. Um, they, they started out with sort of an affiliate program where, um, you could earn uh, credit and free product by getting your friends to to share EOS products on social media. Um, and back then, uh, sponsored sp- social media was not a thing. Uh, and a bunch of celebrities sort of got in on the act and organically started promoting this product. And so, you know, today the 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 sort of early uh, adopters of this product it was like Miley Cyrus and Kim Kardashian and and uh, all these 
these people that would today would cost millions of dollars, um, that they got to sort of uh, endorse the product early, which caused this product to um, completely take off and skyrocket. So one of the the very first sort of um, influencer viral products out there. So it was interesting to talk to Sanjeev about his his experiences with that. And, you know, I, I just got a chance to interview him and I I did, in fact, apply some some EOS lip balm uh, during during the talk. So I think that's maybe the tweet that you saw. Uh, OK. All right. Well, in Las Vegas, I never really need like chapstick type stuff. But in Vegas, I do because it's so darn dry out there. I'm 100 percent with you. I normally would not use lip balm, but I do always bring chapstick. And like uh, to Sanji's credit, like part of the genius of this product is lip lip balm is predominantly bought by women and all of the products were not very women centric. Right. And so they're all convenient form factors for you and I to put in our pocket. Um, but, but a lot of women's apparel doesn't have pockets. And so these things go in purses. And so they designed a product that was very well intentioned to live in a woman's purse, um, which ironically makes it super inconvenient for guys. And so I had to smuggle it onto the stage because it would have looked silly in my pocket. <laughs> now that's kind of a, that's a healthcare item, not something you'd find in a grocery store. So I'm a little surprised that's a keynote. So, so I did infer that this kind of had also kind of the drug stores kind of in, in the whole thing and, and the healthcare or the, the beauty category as well. Yeah. So I think they would characterize this as more beauty than, um, than healthcare. Um, and it's, it's a sort of, affordable impulse beauty. And so it it is sold like actually at the cash wrap in a lot of grocery stores and also drug stores and convenience stores. Um, and I, I do think there was some overlap. I think the the show was primarily targeted at grocery, which meant a lot of the retailers that attended were grocers. Um, but then equal or more attendees were brands that uh, view grocery as a super important channel and it just so happens that a lot of those brands also sell in mass and and uh, convenience and drugs. So you had a lot of the the uh, we'll call them uh, food and non food CPGs. And so yeah, I, I definitely think that uh, that many of the conversations and takeaways uh, expanded beyond pure grocery, but grocery was sort of the epicenter. Cool. Uh, and then you're, so you, you led that keynote, you fireside chatted that up, uh, and then you had a panel called Evolving CPG Retailer Relationships. That sounds pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, and so that panel was, uh, we had three panelists and they're talking all about the dynamics of retailers and brands and how they work together. And a lot of the challenges in, in the new world of digital marketing, um, you know, how uh, there's there's a lot of frustration on both sides. Retailers generally feel like, the brands are behind and aren't aren't really ready to partner with the retailers digitally and retailers are asking for like a lot of support for e-commerce initiatives that brands aren't always um well prepared to meet so there was a lot of talk from the retail side about how they they aspire for the brands to sort of uh catch up um and on the brand side there's a lot of talk about like the lack of of data and transparency and, and, you know, uh, it, it not feeling like an equal partnership on the part of retailers. So this panel was a lot about best practices and sort of making that relationship work. And so we had, uh, uh, Wayne Duan, who's, uh, the VP of e-commerce e at Constellation Brands, which is, a a, a well-known, um, alcohol, um, 
manufacturer with a bunch of popular brands. Um, but Wayne also had formerly uh, been on the e-commerce team at Walgreens. So he kind of talked about his experience at both places. Um, we had the, the VP of brand from Elf Cosmetics, which is another affordable beauty brand that kind of represented the brand's perspective in this, in this uh, dynamic. And Elf, 10 years ago, started out as a direct-to-consumer brand. Then they, they sort of got really popular and became like 90% um, wholesale. And now they're starting to shift the balance again. Um, and then, uh, we, we had a retailer who's, a uh, a well-known market in New York city called fairway market. They're a, a really, uh, a well-known, uh, local chain with a, a bunch of like really high end gourmet products as well as a full, full grocery store. And, uh, uh, so Jason has worked there a long time and talked about their overall perspective, but today the portfolio he mainly owns is, uh, private brands for Fairway, and so he talked about some of the unique dynamics with uh, partnering with brands on on uh, exclusive products. Um, so that was uh, a good set of conversation, and the audience uh, seemed engaged, and we we got some nice feedback about that panel. Well, did you get to the? Um, so we've talked about private label, then you started using the term owned products. Have have you? Has uh, that caught on? What's 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 the difference between the two there? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, it's definitely one one of the themes that they show. Uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about later. But um, in general, I call private label sort of this hundred year old practice of uh, a retailer offering a a more value oriented version of a national brand product. So it has the exact same product attributes as the national brand. Uh, it's just sold at a lower price point without the brand name on it, um, and generally. 100% of the marketing for the product is simply the fact that it's on the shelf next to the national brand. So you get a headache, you go to Walgreens to get uh, Advil, and on the shelf next to Advil is Walbuprofen, um, and it says right on the package, compared to the active ingredient in Advil, and it's a little cheaper, right? So to me, that's private label, and there at this show, there's a lot of talk about private label, and it's an important part of the mix for retailers, and it obviously has an impact on profitability, and there, there's a bunch of good reasons why private label is important. But to me, um, the thing that's getting more traction is this evolution of that idea where retailers actually launch their own unique products that are different from the national brands. Um, in most cases, the retailers using their intimacy with the customer to design a product that's in a gap that's not well met by the national brands. And in most cases, retailers have to uh, learn all of the skills that the brands have in terms of building a brand and marketing it and advertising it. And so to me, owned brands are these full brands that just happen to be owned by a retailer versus private label are these sort of value-oriented alternatives to the national brand. And there was a lot of talk about both of those at the show. Okay, cool. Um, and then your last panel was called Using Product Content to Build Brands. Yeah. Uh, and so... What, you know, again, there are a lot of practitioners at this show. So there are a lot of like directors and VPs that are trying to learn best practices. And on both sides of the fence, like one of the primary areas where brands and retailers really have to work together is on this digital shelf. Um, and so, you know, one of the ways this comes up most often is, oh, my God, Amazon didn't used to be relevant in this category. And now it's super relevant. And 
you know, increasingly searches are shifting from Google to Amazon. And so how are we going to get our products to show up in the Amazon search engine like they used to show up in the Google search engine? Um, and once people find our products, how are we going to get them to learn enough to decide to buy our product instead of an alternative? And so the the that what we in e-commerce call that product detail page uh, you know, brands are thinking of as the digital equivalent of their retail shelf. And so there's a, a lot of conversation uh, amongst brands about what the best practices are in content for that digital shelf. In the overwhelming majority of cases, brands create that content and then they syndicate it to the retailer um, to show up on all these various e-commerce sites. And so there's Different retailers have different requests and criterias and preferences about how to execute that content. Different brands have different philosophies about how much to invest in it and what the best practices are. So we had a really good, robust conversation about uh, like what what some of the the best practices are and what some of the new ideas are and what some of the pros and cons are to to various approaches um, in investing in. Uh, this content to uh, you know sort of build a brand in a in a world in which a lot of purchase decisions are are substantially digitally influenced. Are a lot of these guys um, you know, struggle with just basic digital assets because you know in the traditional grocery store model they haven't really had to provide much of way of photography or a short long title or you know. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Almost all of them have followed this like very like slow progression of maturity. So when you're selling Oreos to Walmart, like you you at the at the base level needed to provide about six attributes about the about the Oreos, like how many cookies were in the bag, what the net weight of the bag was, like what a you know a, a basic description that could show up in ERP and be printed on the on the shelf label in the store. Um, and so it was super simple and every brand knew how to provide the six attributes that Walmart wanted. Um, as e-commerce really took off, uh, you know, Amazon and Walmart asked for for 60 and increasingly more attributes about the product. Is it gluten free? Is it, you know, does it have any allergens in it? Um, you know, what's all the nutrition information in the in the old world? They just provided a picture of the nutrition label to the store. Now they have to provide all this data. And as you alluded to, a super important attribute is images and how many to take and what should they be pictures of? And is there any rich media going with that? And, you know, any any comparison copy? And they're all all of these um, evolutions of best practices. And so, you know, as you kind of alluded to early on, you know, that's a Walmart sales guy like, you know, filling out an Excel spreadsheet and emailing it to his buyer at Walmart um, and, you know, frankly, in the early days, not caring very much because 99.9% of his sales were happening through the, the Walmart buyer in Bentonville and only, you know, 0.1% of his sales were happening on walmart.com. And so, you know, just send the walmart.com guy what, what he needs to go away. Um, but, you know, that rapidly evolved and, you know, became a very meaningful part of sales very quickly. And eventually retailers, you know, sort of used the their store volume is leverage and said, Hey, we're going to give you less shelf space in the store. If you're not complying with all the, the new digital content requirements we have, and we want you to syndicate ratings and reviews, and we want you to do all these other things. And so the kind of like sales guy hiring some company to fill out a spreadsheet turned into uh, these internal teams and centers of expertise, creating all that content and, and, you know, uh, 
buying or building the kind of tools that they would use for product information management and content syndication um, and all that. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think Channel Advisor plays a pretty significant role in in parts of that ecosystem for a lot of brands as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, we developed the capability to um, take your e-commerce products and push them all around. Uh, and uh, under the hood, it's a very similar kind of set of uh, capabilities. And so we're, we've got a lot of brands using it now too. Uh, so, so those were the things you got to uh, speak about. And then did you, uh, it sounds like you were super busy between Starbucks runs, uh, applying lip balm and, and all this stuff. Uh, did you get a chance to go to any of the other talks or can you summarize some of the other themes that we, sh- we should know about? I did. I think I made it to all the keynotes and I, I made it to as many of the other breakout sessions as I could. Um, and then, of course, there uh, were a couple of friends of the show, former guests that were also at the show live tweeting a lot of the sessions. And so it was pretty funny. A lot of times I was in one session, uh, you know, trying to consume the content myself and I'm following uh, uh like Michelle, um, who's been on the show from Euromonitor, who was doing a fabulous job of live tweeting the the session she was at, and so so I feel like I got a pretty good feel for the overall show, despite the fact that that uh, there at a show like this there is a fair amount of uh, of fear of missing out that you're going to go to one session and it's going to not be what you hoped, and and you'll miss some really good content in another session. Yeah. Uh, so what what were the highlights? Yeah. So uh, high level, I kind of uh, broke the show up into these four big themes. Um, and the, the biggest theme by far is this overall digital disruption of grocery um, that essentially, you know, grocery had been pretty stagnant for for uh, a long time. And that now uh, digital shopping for groceries, digital influence sales in grocery and increasingly uh delivery and curbside pickup of grocery is gaining huge traction. Uh, it's going to be a meaningful uh, part of grocery. I think eMarketer published some data that it's like um, uh, 1.3% of grocery sales right now are digital. Um, but grocery, same story as e-commerce, grocery is growing at like 2%. Um, but digital grocery is growing at like a, a 20% uh, KGAR. So um, that in the next five years, that 1.3% is going to be more like three or 4% of all grocery. And it's the overwhelming majority of all growth in the grocery category. So, you know, all the other themes and most of the content in the show is all about how brands and retailers and consumers are responding to this, this digital disruption of the traditional grocery model. Um, So then the three sub themes under that, that I felt like came up a lot is uh, there's a lot of conversation and uh, opinion and evolution of the idea of how you get all the groceries into the grocery bag, right? So there's a lot of traditional grocers that own a bunch of stores um, that, you know, feel like uh, sending professional employees to pick groceries off the shelf and put them in the bag is the most cost-effective model because, it leverages all this fixed assets that the retailer already have. It leverages all their existing inventory. It shares the inventory between in-store customers and digital customers. Um, you know, it, it's the, the, it, it leverages all these fixed assets that that, that retailer already has. Um, and so you think about like Walmart curbside pickup and Kroger curbside pickup uh, are, both, are both sort of in-store picking models. 
And, you know, most notably Instacart, which has now passed like $3 billion in sales, is all sort of in-store picking. Um, and so a lot of traditional grocery all feel like that's the preferred model. But then there's a lot of digital startups that have said, actually, um, that's super inefficient and the unit economics are really challenging there because in a traditional general merchandise e-commerce site, um, you know, on average, you're lucky if you sell two or three items per order. Um, and so the amount of picking per order is pretty small, but a typical grocery order might have 30 to 60 items in it. And so the cost per item to pick um, is is a much bigger part of the overall cost of an e-commerce order and paying people to walk around stores that are not efficiently assorted for pickers, but instead are designed for discovery and browsing um, is really inefficient. And so you you have dedicated digital grocers like Fresh Direct or Peapod um, or uh, a super successful digital grocer in the UK called Orcado um, that all have this model where they use dedicated automated uh, grocery uh, fulfillment centers that are much more optimized for picking costs. Um, and in one interesting case, uh, Okada, which is based in the UK, has partnered with Kroger in their, their um, opening fulfillment centers using Okada's uh, technology and software in the US. So Kroger is both doing store picking and they're now piloting these micro-fulfillment centers. Uh, Albertsons, which is like the second largest uh, a dedicated grocer in the U.S. Uh, made a big announcement that they were launching um, micro-fulfillment centers and they felt that that was a, a, a superior, more cost-effective model in the long run. So they're like, it's still early days, but there's a lot of pros and cons on both sides in this whole whole conundrum of what's the efficient supply chain, um, you know, when you're dealing with perishables and fresh and, and uh, you know, cold chain and all these these products that have to be kept at, at particular temperatures. So that a lot of interesting pros and cons from various practitioners around those picking models. Um, so that was kind of uh, sub theme one. Sub theme two is this whole debate about um, new startup brands versus new products from existing brands. Um, and so you think about like a Harry's Razor, which would be a, a pure startup brand um, or a new product being launched by Kraft. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the buzz in the industry is all about these new digitally native startup brands. We talk about a lot of them in general, but there are also a lot of them that are in the grocery space um, and get a lot of buzz. Uh, but also in the grocery space are more products that are new products that are either launched by big companies or um, new products that are launched by companies but are intended to be sold through wholesale versus um, direct-to-consumer. So you think about like a Chobani yogurt, for example, like that emerged and quickly disrupted the industry and took a huge chunk of, of Dannon sales because Dannon didn't, you know, jump on the Greek yogurt trend quick enough and Chobani like became a very big company, but Shivani doesn't really focus on selling yogurt direct. They sell it through all these grocery wholesalers. Um, and so a lot of interesting discussions about the pros and cons there. And like my big takeaway is all of these dedicated startups that are focused on direct to consumer are making more innovative products and they're iterating them faster and they're getting them out in the market and getting uh, initial customer adoption much quicker 
than the the big brands are or than the wholesale distributed products are. Um, but all of them seem to hit this plateau and really struggle to scale. So I'm calling the the direct to consumer startups really good at innovation and and uh, product development and early launches, but they're really challenging to scale. Um, and on the big side, uh, the products that they get to market are are doing much better and scaling and becoming much more significant in the marketplace. Um, but in general, are there's far fewer of them and they're they're much slower to come to market and there's in general less innovation in them. And so there's kind of this interesting thing that you have these two models that each each have their pros and cons. And you know, how do you kind of get the best of both worlds? And is is that Harry's launching as a direct to consumer brand? And once they hit that plateau, you know, they they shifted to today, the majority of their sales are now wholesale. And and so, you know, there's kind of some of those those conversations. Um, and then the, the third big trend uh, is this whole private label own brands thing that we discussed earlier. Um, but I would say both of those trends are becoming increasingly prominent. And so you think about like all the keynotes at this show and like Kroger uh, has a huge private label. It's the most successful uh, organic food uh, brand in the U.S. called Simple Truth. And Kroger's a grocery store in the U.S., but in China, Kroger's a brand because they're selling Simple Truth on Alibaba in China. Um, we, we've we talked a lot about Boxed on this show, um, which is an innovative uh, retailer that started out selling wholesale goods. Today, a big chunk of all their sales are owned products that they're developing. Um, uh, one of the founders of Thrive Market, which is sort of a online version of Whole Foods in a way, um, uh, talked about like uh, the overwhelming success of their own products and how, you know, they were differentiated in the marketplace. So that th- that was a big trend. And those, you know, I think if you looked at all the keynotes and a lot of the breakouts, you'd, you'd see them like pretty neatly fall into those three big trends. How, how do you net out on, um, so I'll just pick one, uh, so we've talked a lot about delivery versus curbside. Was was there any conclusive evidence on either of those? Uh, no, I think the jury is still out. I will say, like I have, you know, pretty flippantly run around saying, "Hey, the big winner is going to be curbside." That the unit economics really don't work um, for for home delivery for grocery and perishable and kind of the the Reader's Digest on my logic for that is that. Uh, general merchandise e-commerce is generally what we call a route-based delivery. Like you get 300 orders, you put them all in the UPS truck, the guy drives to 300 uh, addresses and delivers them all. And so, you know, each one of those delivery is paying for one three hundredth of that trip. And the UPS driver could show up at your your house or work any place within kind of a 10-hour window and deliver the, the goods and it would be no problem. In fresh and perishable, um, if you order milk or you order ice cream... Uh, you need to be home exactly when that delivery arrives so that you can put those products in a refrigerator or freezer. Um, and generally the way that, that uh, retailers have to do that for most of the country is they have to do a point-based delivery, which means a guy drives straight from a store or a fulfillment center to your house, and now that delivery has to pay for 100% of that trip instead of one three hundredth. And so in general, because of that, the unit economics are much more favorable to curbside pickup and curbside pickup is good enough from a convenience standpoint. Like a, a lot of families find super convenient to order their groceries digitally, 
pick them up at their convenience, maybe on the way home from soccer practice, and they're stored in a climate-controlled storage facility, and they, they get put in your trunk really efficiently. Um, and that's a really high customer satisfaction experience for most consumers. So put all that together, and curbside pickup is the big win. Um, and I still believe that's true, but I got to express that point of view to some really smart operators at a bunch of these grocery stores. And, and their kind of feedback, which I, I do take to heart, is – hey, Jason, you're probably mostly right, but you're actually underestimating the fact that the picking is way more expensive than the delivery. And so, you know, the the, the unit economic problem is more around uh, if, you, if you have a really expensive pick of 30 or 60 items, you then can't afford to do a point delivery. Um, but that if you have a really efficient uh, fulfillment center and you can get the picking cost down well enough, you can put those deliveries on a refrigerated truck, and you may not be able to do the the 300 deliveries that a UPS driver can make in a day, but you still can make multiple deliveries, um, guarantee tight delivery windows in a climate-controlled truck from a, a, a dedicated fulfillment center. And so um, they were arguing that, that you know, maybe there's more communities that have enough density to support delivery than I was originally thinking. So I'm, I'm starting to amend my thought process. I think the clear answer is um, that the world is going to have all of these delivery modalities. Sometimes you're going to want to go to the store and pick the stuff out yourself, um, and that's going to be your preference. Sometimes you're going to want to leverage curbside pickup, and other times you are going to want delivery. And so, you know, good, good retailers are going to have to figure out a way to support all those modalities. And then um, in the whole kind of digitally native vertical brand startup versus brands from existing companies, where where did you net out on that one? Yeah, that that is interesting. So the it, it feels like the the digitally native brands have more tools in their their uh, tool belt to overcome their deficiencies than the big brands do right now, right? Like, so you you go talk to the big CPGs and you talk about what their strategy is to infuse innovation and have a, you know, a faster pace of new products and have products that are better suited to the consumer. Um, and you frankly get a lot of blank uh, stares and you get a lot of... Uh, kind of the same unfulfilling answers that, oh, we're going to set up an innovation team or we're going to act as a venture capitalist and and go, you know, fund a bunch of projects. Um, but, you know, these big brands have just not demonstrated uh, the ability to get much faster and get much more innovative. And these big brands that are exclusively selling through wholesale are fundamentally disintermediated from the customer. So, they do not have the customer preference data to use to uh, design and uh, execute new products very well. And I, I just haven't seen any of them, you know, really like uh, clearly articulate a solution to some of those deficiencies. Whereas the, the, the native direct to consumer products have the ability to take advantage of all of uh, the strengths of the direct to consumer space and when they get to the point where they kind of max out on the scale, they can reach direct to consumer. They they have the option to then pivot to a a wholesale distribution model or a blended model, or they're in a position to establish a reasonable valuation and get acquired by one of these big companies. And so it like you know while there are challenges on both sides, 
it appears there's more ways to overcome the hurdles uh, if you start out as a, a, a new digitally native brand than there are uh, if you start out inside of one of these these big brands, at least at least for now, that's that's how it seems to me. If I kind of pull the thread on that, um, so we talked about so some of these grocery stores like Kroger creating their own private label or, or owned brands, but then if I'm a CPG, it, it seems like that's another reason to go direct, uh, other than the channels kind of being complicated to navigate. Was was that a theme? So CPGs going direct, or is that just really not happening in grocery? No, no, no. It, uh, it's so it's often discussed. There's not a ton of success stories, right? And so usually when a CPG tells you about dr- their direct to consumer success, they're going to be telling you about a direct to consumer brand they bought. Okay. Um, but they're all talking about it. And frankly, like I strongly advocate it. And I think you and I have talked, um, in general, I feel like developing a direct-to-consumer capability and strategy needs to be an important part of every one of these brands because if you 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 sort of um, look at this at the moment and you've got a bunch of brands uh, that are dependent on on wholesale retailers and you look at the retailers um, and they're they're super distressed and have a bunch of headwinds. Their number one tactic for overcoming their headwinds is in differentiating themselves from our, our friends in Seattle, or what I'm soon going to have to say, our friends in Seattle, New York, Virginia, um, is to have exclusive products and have owned brands. And so the retailers and brands that used to be, you know, super synergistic have are increasingly becoming frenemies or direct competitors. Um, and it and the retailers are frankly having a lot more success with that at the moment than the brands are. So a bunch of retailers are becoming super successful at building brands. Um, we talked about a couple in the grocery space, but like, you know, oh my God, like Target has launched like three brands that sold over a billion dollars in their first year. None of the digital native brands that we talk about on this show have have done that, right? Um, and so retailers are getting successful at making uh the transition to build products. And in that world, there is less, sh- there's less shelf space for the brands. Um, in a world that's increasingly becoming kind of winner take all, you kind of imagine some future when, when, you know, we're all going to get the bulk of our purchases from uh, an Amazon monopoly in North America, or maybe a Amazon Walmart duopoly. Um, there's a lot less points of presence to carry that brand's product. And so that, that brand is going to lose all the leverage to the you know few set of aggregators at the top of the ecosystem unless they're also able to sell direct, unless they can build a relationship direct with the consumer. Even if it's not high volume and profitable in the short run, I feel like they need to develop these skills just so that they get some customer intimacy so they can start building more relevant, faster um, more agile products. And I feel like they, they need a lab to test and learn all this digital shelf content and all these digital best practices that we've been talking about on today's show. So when they execute at Walmart, they're not just, you know, sending an image that they have no way to test and hoping it sells well on Walmart. Like far better to be able to test all that content on your own direct-to-consumer channel, uh, iterate it really quickly, and then take a hero image that you know works and syndicate it to Walmart. So... For a variety of reasons, I think that's an important uh, skill for CPGs to evolve, and I would say they are they are doing that uh, cautiously and slowly. Cool. We, we haven't um, 
it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without a little Amazon. And we, we covered it at the top of the show, but um, I didn't see anyone from Amazon speaking. I'm, I may have missed that. Um, but sometimes these conferences, it's funny, people are avoiding talking about it. And it's the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Was, was there a lot of Amazon talk going on, at least behind the scenes? Yeah. So uh, to my knowledge, Amazon really didn't have a presence at the show, um, which on the one hand isn't surprising, but on the other hand, I would say uh, the founders of this show have actually been pretty decent at getting Amazon speakers to their other shows. Um, now, admittedly, the speakers they get are the ones that you know have the v- most vested interest in in selling their products to the industry. So, not shocking that Pay by Amazon is happy to go to Money Twenty Twenty and talk about their digital wallet, right? Um, and uh, not shocking that that the Amazon uh, marketplace, when that used to be a separate in- entity, you know, was was happy to go to Shop Talk and kind of recruit new sellers and things like that. Um, the but they did have the Prime Now folks uh, have spoke at several of the, the the Shop Talk shows, and so you might have thought they would be there. Um, it would have been fascinating to hear from some of the Amazon fresh people are now the, you know, the, the folks responsible for the Amazon whole foods integration. Um, and, and none of them were publicly there. I'm sure Amazon secretly had some people there, but almost every conversation, when you say digital disruption of grocery, um, everybody points to the same event that like, there was a lot of talk about digital disrupting grocery, but nobody, nobody was personally experiencing it or nobody was very worried about it until the day that Amazon announced they, they purchased whole foods. Um, and that, that really sort of kicked this whole, uh, disrupt digital disruption of grocery in high gear and caused like, you know, almost all the people we saw speaking were people that got hired as a direct result of that acquisition. Um, so they were definitely on everyone's mind, even if they weren't there in per, in in uh, person. Cool. Any other highlights you want to hit? I think those were the big ones. It it is interesting that this is one of the spaces that uh, like doesn't feel like Amazon has won yet, and they actually probably have some intrinsic disadvantages versus some of the other players. So I, I'm by no means prepared to say, "Oh my gosh, they're not going to win." Um, but Amazon on their own, you know, uh, dabbled in in fresh fresh uh, for I, I want to say Amazon Fresh is like ten years old, right? And never really got a ton of traction. Um, and then after they bought Whole Foods, I, I've been really impressed by how fast Amazon's been able to integrate a lot of their digital chops into Whole Foods and in some test markets like the one I live in. Um, they have some really compelling Whole Foods delivery options and Whole Foods curbside pickup options, which are great. But the reality is Whole Foods is a tiny percentage of the whole grocery market. And they've, you know, implemented these tests in a tiny percentage of the Whole Foods. So, you know, you look at the the folks that Walmart or Kroger is touching with digital grocery versus the amount of customers Amazon's touching. And right now, um, Walmart and Kroger have a head start. Now, I would argue Amazon's a way faster, more agile company than Walmart or Kroger. And so... You know, I think we can expect to see Amazon continue to make up ground, but it it is it is interesting to see see a market where Amazon probably has to try harder than some other folks if they want to win. I don't know, Scott. What do you think? It's going to be interesting. So you know, they are pushing the Whole Foods pretty hard. I've noticed in my Prime now recently they're 
they're kind of integrated whole foods delivery right in the prime now interface, which is, you know, it used to be this separate set of inventory. And um, yeah, I, I think it's too early to call. Yeah. I do not count Amazon out of any fight. No, no, I, I totally agree. Um, so, and, and it's going to be fun to have a ringside seat to watch it all play out. Um, I will throw one other teaser out there. Um, we did get to talk to several of uh, friends of the show that have been on the show a number of times before. And so shortly after uh, this episode's available, we'll have a couple episodes live from the grocery shop show and we'll we'll get some other folks uh, perspectives on uh, the show and the industry. And so, you know, uh, if you're if you're trying to figure out the the digital grocery space, I would encourage you to look for those uh, upcoming episodes as well. And uh, with that, this is going to be a great place to wrap because we have uh, uh, used up our allotted time. So as always, uh, love to continue the conversation on Facebook. If you have any questions or feel uh, like we got something wrong, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and as always, if you love this show, we sure would appreciate it if you jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. That's the, the biggest favor you can do for the show. Awesome. Thanks everyone for joining us. And thanks Jason for uh, being our Jason and Scott representative in the field in Las Vegas. I appreciate it. It's, it's never as fun without you. Um, but uh, uh, you were, you were certainly there in spirit. Um, so hopefully next year uh, we'll get to do it together. Uh, and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.